Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about GI cancers, racial and ethnic disparities, and improving health outcomes with Dr. Jacqueline Gaddy. Dr. Gaddy is an assistant professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So Jacqueline, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Of course. I recently relocated to New Haven from many different cities. I am originally from Buffalo, New York, where I was born and raised, and that's where most of my family is. I attended Spelman College during my undergraduate education and then went on to Loyola for medical school and also did a little bit of graduate training, graduate work at a combined program with Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center and University of Buffalo. And then most recently, I just completed my medical oncology fellowship at the University of North Carolina, where I also obtained my master's of science in clinical research. As far as what I do, I am very much a gastrointestinal oncologist here at Smilo. And um, for those that may not be aware, unlike certain solid tumors, such as breast, for instance, GI cancers encompasses many, many different tumor types. So I see a wide variety of different cancers within GI oncology. And in addition to my clinical work, I also am very, very invested in research. And my research focus more specifically is evaluating inequitable cancer care delivery and ultimately hoping to develop interventions that will strive to improve cancer care equity. So let's dive into that last bit a little bit further. So, you know, we often talk about diversity in our patient population, um, but tell us a little bit more about what the data tell us in terms of uh, disparities and, and its relationship to outcomes, particularly in GI cancer. Of course. Well, as I said earlier, in regards to the large variety of GI cancer tumor types, it's important to note that actually gastrointestinal tumors, some of them are, are rather common and some of them not as common. Specifically, when we think about colon cancer, it's the third most common diagnosed cancer. And it's also, unfortunately, the third leading cause of cancer death. And that's for both males and females. And you see similar findings in esophageal cancer, which is not as common as far as diagnosis is concerned, but also has a high amount of um, cancer deaths being the seventh leading cause of cancer death specifically amongst males. And when you, when you start to really dissect these numbers and think about top 10 or top three and things of that nature, unfortunately, when we stratify specifically based on race and overall background, we see in many of these cases, especially when we consider mortality, that it's, it's usually much higher for our Black patients. And this is seen in pancreatic cancer. It's a seen in colon. And I could go on and on about this, of course, but a lot of this is in some cases related to screening, but also just strongly related to structural racism and the social determinants of health. And so, you know, that's always been a question, right, um, about whether the disparities we see in outcomes are 
genetic, like biologic, or whether they actually do have more to do with socioeconomic status and and other issues. What's your take on that? Well, we know from just in recent years, really being able to, I always refer to the tumor type signature, meaning that when I have a patient, I can then get very rich information in regards to the mutations and things that are expressed on that particular patient's cancer. So biology is always an extremely important part of cancer, cancer care delivery, and also outcomes. But when we control for all of that that I have just said, we see still that there are overt differences between non-Hispanic Black patients and comparing them to their white counterparts. And Recent data has really shown that a lot of this is a result of the social determinants of health. And I I really try to call things as they are. Sometimes it's the social determinants of health, but when we dig a little bit deeper, those social determinants are largely a result of, as I said earlier, structural racism. We see that um, things such as food deserts. We see that in redlining. We see that in lack of screening. We also see that in lack of equitable representation amongst cancer clinical trials. And all of these things that I just listed, they strongly relate to cancer outcomes and unfortunately, inequitable outcomes. So so talk a little bit about how structural racism kind of plays into that, because we certainly know that there are food deserts. We know that um, there are patients that are more privileged than others in terms of their socioeconomic status. Um, but talk to us about the connection that can be made between structural racism and and those other social determinants of health. Of course. When we, and this is a really, really hot topic right now, but as a Black female oncologist, raised in Buffalo, New York, which is very much an inner city, this is my lived experience. So I've been seeing and being actually impacted by this for much of my life and largely a result of why I'm currently in this as far as my practice is concerned. Let's take an example. When we think about cancer clinical trial representation or lack of representation of minoritized patients, a lot of that is a result of ineligible or ineligibility criteria. When cancer clinical trials are designed, they have to determine what patients are actually going to be eligible for this and what patients are not. One of the common criteria for eligibility, it really looks at comorbidities and comorbidities being complicating factors such as, does this patient have hypertension? Do they have diabetes? And if it is diagnosed, is it controlled? Is it not controlled? We know that minoritized patients, unfortunately, suffer from a lot of comorbidities, specifically hypertension and diabetes, as I just said. And oftentimes, those two specific comorbidities are a result of eating habits, and they're also a result of obesity which largely is resulting from what options do you have in your community? If you live within a food desert, one defined as not an actual fully functioning grocery store that you can 
ideally walk to, that means your options are limited. That means you are at times only allowed to go to the corner store, which doesn't have fresh produce and which does not have fresh options that you can actually go home and cook. But instead, you know, very, very quick food options that are high in salt and just usually microwavable. That's a great example because if these patients, in fact, don't have the food options, how are they really going to have improved um, outcomes as far as controlling hypertension, improved obesity, or lack of obesity. That's just an example, but of course, there are many more other examples. Yeah. I mean, and I think that the socioeconomic status and the social determinants of health are interspersed in that, right? In the sense that, um, it, it also is not just that you live in a food desert, but are you able to afford uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, which may be more expensive than your other alternatives? Um, why were you living in a food desert? Could it be that that was um, the neighborhood that you could afford to live in? Um, Absolutely. So, so talk, talk a little bit. I mean, it seems like there's so many things that are at interplay that it's kind of all interwoven. That's absolutely correct. Within recent years, I think it was well, it was actually right during the pandemic, at the start of the pandemic, Dr. Lori Pierce, who um, is the first Black female president of ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, she did an amazing job of very much focusing on the social determinants of health. And that is not to say that prior to her presidency, we did not talk about the social determinants of health, but it was not as closely monitored. It was not closely evaluated, especially within cancer care delivery. And when we think about social determinants of health, it's, it's of course not just food options. We think about education. We think about finances. We think about job options. We think about going into it a little bit deeper as far as how many children do you have? Are you a single parent? Do you have two parents in the household? If you're a single parent, do you have a babysitter? If you don't have a babysitter, who watches the children when you go to work, et cetera? These are very, very much interwoven. And I think you bring up a good point because they are so interwoven and they, they very much closely align with actually defining who that patient is. It shows that when patients walk into the door and they come to see me, it's not just their cancer, right? It's not just, okay, this patient has stage three B colon cancer. I'm going to give them adjuvant chemotherapy for three months. And then after that, et cetera, et cetera. No, there's more steps that actually need to happen prior to that delivery of adjuvant chemotherapy to even evaluate, is this patient going to actually be able to come in for treatment on a regular scheduled routine basis. And again, by evaluating those prior to, I can strive to actually understand what are the true needs of the, this patient. And by identifying those needs, ideally I would identify things that are targetable so that I can actually provide patients with additional supportive services that oftentimes we do have here at Smilo, but we just don't even realize that the patients are lacking these actual resources. Yeah, I mean, you bring up such a good point, which is, you know, really in the evaluation of the whole patient and their their social context, which has direct ramifications for their ability to both comply with a treatment regimen as well as, um, you know, make it to appointments and so on and so forth, um, which really needs to be addressed if there are barriers to care. Now, the it brings up the important point, which is, you know, 
there are patients who may not be being seen at Smilo. They may not be being seen at large academic centers that are blessed with social workers and perhaps other resources and supportive services. What do you say for patients who are out in the community um, being seen by community oncologists? How would you recommend that that community oncologist and that patient um, together work on those barriers to care? What resources are available for them? That's a great question. I think it's twofold. One of the things that I always strive to tell, you know, my family, my friends, and also my patients and people I just meet, self-advocacy is so critical. And asking questions when things are not explained clearly. And as I'm describing this to you, one of the most important factors that we often mislabel within the medical practice is trust. We often say that these patients are not trusting and they're they're mistrusting for historical reasons, which of course is true. But what that really should actually be flipped to is we have not moved in a trustworthy manner. So one of the most important things that providers can do, whether they're in the community or they're associated with a large academic practice, they first need to establish rapport. They first need to move in a way that is in a trusting way. By doing that, you would allow ideally your patient to become more comfortable so that way they are aware of what they can share and they feel comfortable saying, okay, I, I need this, I need that. Social workers may not be available in the community, but some of this honestly is also just the work of the physician saying, okay, I'm aware of this. If we can get you this transportation service that is available in the community, I can get you here to your actual appointments. And I think, again, it's just really digging deeper and being trusting, moving in a trustworthy manner, and also being aware of actually what is available in your community, and then ultimately seeing what your patient needs, if they are willing, ideally, to share that with you. Yeah, so important to kind of really understand what community resources you might have available to you to try to address some of those disparities. We're going to pick up this conversation right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the care of GI cancers with my guest, Dr. Jacqueline Gaddy. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their one-of-a-kind sexuality, intimacy, and menopause program combines medical and psychological interventions for women who experience sexual dysfunction after cancer. SmiloCancerHospital.org. Genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Genetic counseling is a process that includes collecting a detailed personal and family history, a risk assessment, and a discussion of genetic testing options. Only about 5-10% to of all cancers are inherited, and genetic testing is not recommended for everyone. Individuals who have a personal and or family history that includes cancer at unusually early ages multiple relatives on the same side of the family with the same cancer, more than one diagnosis of cancer in the same individual, rare cancers, or family history of a known altered cancer predisposing gene could be candidates for genetic testing. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Jacqueline Gaddy. We're discussing the care of patients with GI cancer, as well as racial and ethnic disparities and improving health outcomes. Now, one of the things, um, Jacqueline, right before the break that you mentioned um, was the fact that it's really important to develop a trusting relationship with your patient and to kind of address um, their needs. But another thing that you mentioned was how there are inequities in terms of clinical trials. And you know, you you did in passing touch upon the idea that um, African American patients may be distrusting of the entire healthcare system, let alone the physician sitting in front of them, uh, with regards to participation in clinical trials due to historical unethical behavior on the part of the medical and scientific community. Um, how do we address that barrier now going forward? I want to be a little bit more clear when I say this. So, and and exactly what you just asked me is, is often how it's framed within the data and within social media is that the Black or the African-American community is distrusting of the entire medical practice. That framework is what often actually, it perpetuates that similar option of, okay, well, they, they don't trust us. Instead, if we shift it to, I need to move in a trusting manner. I need to be more trustworthy as a physician. That means that we're, it's not the responsibility of the minoritized patient population, such as the Black patients, to to move more trusting. It is really actually on the healthcare system to move in a trusting way. So we don't, as a community, I don't think that my patients that are minoritized, they have to shift their way of thinking and things of that nature. No, because their thinking is largely a result of historical data. And I'm using the word history very loosely because it still actively happens. We saw that in COVID. We saw that in many other things. It's not just the unfortunate events of Henrietta Lacks or the Tuskegee syphilis study, this happens every single day. So again, it just shows that this responsibility is really, really on us as a healthcare system and as providers. So what can we do to move in more of a trusting way? We can be extremely transparent. We can arrange the clinical trial criteria to be more inclusive. We can actually have more providers that show a concordance between the provider and the patients in the communities that they serve. Those are things that when a patient from a minoritized community walks into a hospital and they don't see anyone that looks like them, that is a representation of the healthcare system, right? That means that we should be striving to improve more more providers and increase actual workforce diversity. So that way, again, it's more representative of the community that we're serving. And we see that right here in the New Haven community. We should strive to be more representative of that actual patient population, if that makes any sense. You know, I find that um, for the general population and um, for minoritized um, patients um, as a segment of that general population, 
many patients, and I don't think that this is necessarily particular um, to minorities, but uh, could be, um, often come with a sense of, I don't want to be experimented upon. And, you know, and, and I think that your point about building a trusting relationship is a good one, but how else can we kind of convey to patients that, you know, the importance of clinical trials, because the other thing is that clinical trials are so important to actually improving health outcomes to a given population. And we saw that even in looking at gender disparities, right? When a lot of the studies on cardiac medications were done on men, and then we discovered that cardiac disease is very different in women. Um, but when women were excluded from clinical trials, um, it really leads to this void uh, of data for that population. So so can you address that? Of course. And you you said something that was extremely important. So when we think about clinical trials, whether it's in cancer care delivery or in other chronic illnesses, they are, as you just mentioned, the initial steps that are critical for drug discovery along with drug development. And one of the most important components of, of studies and specifically clinical trials we're speaking about is to be generalizable. And all that means is that what we take from this trial or this study, we should be able to generalize it to the patients that are in fact impacted by this said disease. So we know that cancer in fact does not see color, meaning that cancer does not pick one to actually develop in because they are black, they are white, et cetera. And when we do these studies in largely non-Hispanic white patients, and we do not include non-Hispanic black or Hispanics, et cetera, or other minoritized patients, then how in fact is that information generalizable? And that is critical. And I just want to make sure that that is, you know, conveyed here, as you just said, is that we should strive to make sure that the patients that are hopefully going to be treated with this drug are actually those that it is studied in. So then we can actually generalize it to the population. The way that I think that we can do this is to actually increase awareness, to educate the community. And I think that's one of the most important things is actually to increase include the community in the research. Community outreach is very, very critical for advancing research because these are the patients that we need to be touching. So we should be including them from the very beginning developing stages all throughout. Because again, that's the community that is largely minoritized and unfortunately not receiving equitable care. And, and I think to your point, getting the community involved early on uh, allows for that building of trust allows um, for for people to um, really get engaged and in so doing uh, be interested in moving forward with with clinical trials. You know, the other question that I have is that so often when we talk about disparities and we talk about minority populations, very often the conversation really re revolves around race and ethnicity. Um, but we've seen that 
a similar story uh, can be told for other minority populations, whether that is um, people who are sexual minorities. So the LGBTQ plus community who uh, very similarly um, have, you know, not necessarily a great trusting relationship um, with their healthcare providers uh, and often suffer um, poor health outcomes as a result. Um, religious minorities uh, who may similarly be uh, faced with certain stigma. Um, how, how can we learn from our experience um, looking at racial and ethnic disparities um, to expand that, to look at other minority populations for whom the same situations may may occur? I think the way that there's so much to, to have um, learned from in these last two to three years. 2020 was such a rough year for the entire world. But then if we think about the minoritized communities and how they were impacted by COVID, and we think about George Floyd, and we think about so many others that have endured so many other structurally racist consequences, a lot of that is a result, as I said earlier, from structural racism, but also what's very critical here to answer your question is implicit biases. We we walk into the room oftentimes, and I'm using we importantly, because we all, in fact, carry implicit biases as humans. That is understood because that is human nature. One of the most important things to do, in fact, with that implicit bias is to be aware of it, to actually hone in and say, why am I thinking this? And because I am thinking this, how will this impact the community that I am trying to actually touch and improve outcomes? You can take that same statement that I just said and apply that to other minoritized communities such as you said, based on race, based on gender, based on religious preference, et cetera. It's really being aware of your biases and trying to strive to, to, to get rid of those or to educate yourself and others about why you have them and how, in fact, you can flip them so that way they're in more of a positive light and then ultimately, ideally, would result in more positive treatment and outcomes for said patients. Yeah, I, I I think it's so important to really um, think about our our biases because um, it seems like we we've we've had the same song played many many times over. Whether it's you know disparities based on gender and women's rights, whether we see uh, disparities based on race and and racial rights, uh, ethnicity. LGBTQ status, um, you know, people who are uh, anti-Semitic or Islamophobic. I mean, it's it's all uh, under that uh, banner of uh, implicit bias, and and truly does have an impact on outcomes. In our last few minutes, I, I want to kind of bring it back to um, your clinical practice. You uh, really treat patients with GI cancers. Can you talk a little bit about um, differences in outcomes that you've seen, particularly in GI cancers between um, various racial and ethnic groups and and how you're really trying to um, move the needle on on changing those outcomes? Of course. So taking a step back, when we think about gastrointestinal cancers, as I alluded to earlier, it is a large variety of 
tumor types within GI oncology. For instance, I see patients that have stomach cancer. I see patients that have hepatocellular cancer or carcinoma, excuse me. I see patients that have colon cancer, rectal cancer, anal, pancreatic, neuroendocrine tumors, and the list really goes on. Within those particular tumor types, we know that there's a larger representation of certain patients that are in fact going to have those particular tumor types. And colon being one of those, uh, HCC being one of those. And actually, considering we are here right in New Haven, we know that colon cancer specifically and HCC specifically are largely seen within just our New Haven community. So there is, in fact, differences as far as diagnoses and actual incidents along with unfortunately increased mortality. So as I strive to develop my clinical practice while also developing my research practice, I'll be hoping to evaluate why we are seeing such differences and also more importantly, how we can change these outcomes. Dr. Jacqueline Gaddy is an assistant professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.